Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The thing is that regeneration is the default mode of life. We're alive. So why not get in sync with the default mode of life? It works better for our own health, for our mental health. It works better for farming. It works better for soil. It works better for water, for purity. You just check off the boxes. It works better. The system we have doesn't work. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Many of you have probably heard of Project Drawdown, or you may have just heard the phrase before. And in fact, you may have even heard it referenced by some of the climate experts I've had here on Wild over the years. People like Kim Stanley Robinson and David Wallace-Wells, I think, draw on it in my interviews with them. And I reference it a fair bit in this one wild and precious life. Project Drawdown was the Bible for so many of us in the climate movement. It's both a book and a digital program, and it listed the top 100 things in descending order that we could do to reduce carbon emissions. And it wasn't the obvious things that topped the list either, like building more solar farms or planting more trees, although they are in the list. You might have heard me bang on about it before. Cutting food waste, like the stuff we waste at home as consumers, actually comes in as number three. It cuts more carbon emissions than solar farms and rooftop solar combined. And in fact, in the most updated list, reducing food waste along the whole food chain is ranked now as number one. I've always found that this is actually really empowering for a lot of people because cutting food waste is something that we can all do straight away. It combats a bunch of ethical issues, health issues at the same time, equity issues as well, and is crucial to addressing growing food shortages around the world. Anyway, today's guest created Project Drawdown, along with 200 other researchers and advisors who modelled these solutions, providing 3,000 references along the way. And the book went on to be published in 30 languages in more than 80 countries around the world. Paul Hawken has been an activist most of his life. He worked on the Martin Luther King Jr. Selma marches in the 1960s, and he was assaulted and even seized by the KKK at one point. He founded several eco-businesses, including a natural food company and a solar business. He has six honorary doctorates and countless awards, and he's a regular media fixture on everything from morning TV shows to Larry King and has appeared in Esquire magazine awards. Now, almost five years after Project Drawdown, Paul has published another Bible, the New York Times bestseller Regeneration, with a very ambitious subtitle, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. And it takes things even further. So the book and accompanying website tool includes contributions from Charles Macy, Jane Goodall and Richard Powers. And it features a diverse and wonderfully encouraging lineup on the board of directors, including the spiritualist Jack Cornfield. And this, this whole project is the world's largest listing and network of climate solutions. I will put a link to regeneration.org in the show notes and I'll link directly to the solutions page for you. Honestly, I think it's the best tool out there for individuals and small communities to navigate how they can connect back into rebuilding the planet. Now, I'd been trying to connect with Paul for about five or six years. I figure my emails kept going through to some sort of admin keeper out there, although his people did give me permission to run his commencement speech in the closing chapter of my book, 
which I will also get him to read in this interview. But then out of the blue, a couple of months ago, I got an email from Paul complimenting me on my podcast, this wild podcast you're listening to now. It was one of the most generous emails or letters I've ever received. So I wrote back and suggested, well, why don't you come on as a guest? So here we are. Paul's thesis has always been one of hope. I've been honest lately in my writing over at Substack, but also here in some recent episodes on Wild. I have deep reservations about how much further hope can get us in this climate challenge. And so part of the challenge I put to Paul in this interview is to convince me otherwise. Paul, I'm so glad we're here finally talking to each other. This conversation comes about after a bit of a full circle. I think I'd been in touch with you and then you reached out to me with a beautiful email. It's wonderful to finally see you here. Likewise, I follow you and I love your rambunctious. (laughs) Back at you. (laughs) Big time. (laughs) Now, look, I want to start by flagging that currently I have been, well, I am struggling with this notion of hope and optimism and really not my own personally because I just work to a hopeful vibe, you know, like I get up every day and I am joyously engaged in my climate activism and the way that I live my life in a sustainable way, as sustainable as I can. But I've been in a cynical space and I've been reassessing my take on hope for a number of months now, whether we could actually make it, whether we can end the climate crisis in this generation or otherwise. A big part of it, I think, is that, you know, we've now got the science in place. Denialism is mostly dead, you know. It's kind of not a a, a hindrance like it used to be. We've also got the weather matching the predictions, right? We're in the climate crisis. It's happening right now. But still, the bulk of humanity, and I think you've even put a figure to it at some point, it might have been uh, figurative, but of 98% of people have not budged in any kind of meaningful way. They know it, they feel it, they know they should be doing something, that, but they feel paralysed for whatever reason. And I'm wondering, I think there's so many factors and reasons to this, but I'd be interested in your take as to why this is the case, why people are just failing to kind of move with all of this. Yeah, the, the number I use, Sarah, is 99.5% of the people in the world don't do anything on a daily basis or weekly basis about global warm about global warming and i think that's a low figure actually i think it's higher than that it's a higher percentage so the question is not how much we know and how long we've known it the question is why have we been so ineffective in making the reversal not of just a global warming but actually the restoration of life on the planet sort of passe or this other or i can't i don't have time for that or that's not my purpose or other people will take care of it it's just an often privileged people think of like, well, I'm doing this, I'm recycling, but, you know, this conference of the parties, you know, in November and all that sort of stuff. And that's where it all happens. And I think it has to do with the communication being completely antithetical to how the human brain works, which is, it's all about fear. It's all about threat. It's about, for a long time, it's been about future existential threat. I would say, and I'm sure you would agree that that future existential threat is here right now, but nevertheless, arguing one way or the other doesn't matter. The point being is that that the bombardment by from the press and from stories and about threat and fear and if we don't do this, this is gonna happen and this is what you need to do. And much of the solutionism that was still arises actually was very much about less and reduce and constrict and you know, your your life's gonna have to be, you know, changed in dramatic ways and or you the are you the perpetrator you know you and your you know middle class lifestyle are doing this and this and this and this and now there's microplastics in the ocean which is true you know i'm not trying to de- in any way you know de- lessen the import of these problems and so forth but it, and it all devolves upon an individual an individual feels can't handle it i mean and in in i've written a piece recently where i i sort of calculated how does most of the world wake up? And my guess is about 5.1 billion people wake up every morning, and the only thing they can think about is current existential threat that day. Their children, food, food security, security altogether, education, warmth, housing, a job, income. 
That's 5.1 billion people. So it's crazy for us to think that somehow we have a messaging platform that's going to say, by the way, in addition to all that, <laughs> it's warming. And the warming is going to radically change weather. And, and it's going to flood more. It's going to be drought more. It's going to be hotter. You're going to suffer. You, your crops are going to wither. I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is true. You can't take that in. And so one of my criticisms of the climate movement, and I put that in air quotes, is communication and also about purpose and focus. Because right now, pretty much the climate is the privilege talking to the privilege. And yes, they bring in an indigenous leader, you know, or somebody who's poor, living on an island in the Pacific and so forth, you know, as a spokesperson. But but really, it's a privilege talking to the privilege. And therefore, the messaging is incorrect. Yeah. My impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, we had scientists that came out with all the facts and figures in really good faith you know, because that's their job, but they're not communicators. So they dumped facts and figures onto the planet. And then the climate activists who, you know, we have so much heart and desire to get this message across, right? And we probably responded to facts and figures because that's our neoliberal mindset. We take facts and figures and then we do something with them. We went out there and sort of used these facts and figures almost to blame, to make people feel ashamed, into action. And that, I think, is also part of it. That's where the communication failed. It, it didn't meet people where they were at. I would go further than that. Because even if the communication did, it did not give the 5.1 billion people a sense of where to go, what to do, and how they would benefit from a movement to reversing global warming, to restoring life on Earth, to regenerating life on Earth. They were left out. And they didn't see the connection, how they would actually lead better lives, more secure lives. And that to me is what I was saying about, if you really look at the solutions that, and draw it on, you look at the solutions in regeneration, project regeneration, project drawdown, you look at those solutions and so forth, and you realize that absolutely they make, create a better life for everyone on earth. And everyone, by the way, includes all the creatures and things that fly and things that buzz and things that burrow and things that romp around at the meadows. Everything gets better. And yet that is not the communication. We have the carbon tunnel syndrome, which is somehow carbon is just a thing. It's an element. You know, we, it's too much up there. We've got to, you know, bring it home, direct their capture, you know, stop emitting it, all that sort of stuff. That's such a narrow view. And I think the worst mistake we've made in communication is to use othering verbs about climate, which is tackle, you know, tackle it, fight it, combat it, as if it was out there somewhere else. And othering is the mindset that caused it. We've othered the environment, people, gender, you know, tribes, cultures, etc. We're doing it right now. We have the othering world. And so if we treat it as something that's distinct and separate from the biosphere, then boy, we've lost them. We've lost it right there. Because the biosphere and the atmosphere are the same thing, just like your lungs and your brain are the same body, same body, one's material, one's gas, it's okay. So one's gaseous, one is material. They are identical. And so fighting climate change is so cute. I mean, because climate is supposed to change, thank God it does, you know? And it's always perfect. Isn't it? Always yes. perfect, it can be nothing else. And the fact is, it doesn't, it doesn't care what we think. And actually, it's not a nerd. By the way, it's not an atmosphere is not inert. It's a hive <clears throat> of bacteria. And and what's going on up there is actually a living world as well. And we've thought of, yeah, exactly, as inert. Oh, it's, you know, nitrogen, you know, it's CO two and it's a little bit of this and that. Actually, it's alive as well. Yeah, it's absolutely right. There's nothing wrong with the planet. <laughs> you know, the planet's doing its thing. It's us that needs to change. We're not gonna fix the planet per se. I want to get to some of those ideas because they form the basis of your latest book and project, Regeneration. But let's go to Drawdown, which was a book that a lot of people are familiar with. It's the book that did get people enthused for for a period of time. And you researched the data to find the 100 most effective things that people can do to draw down carbon. And the point was made, all the solutions and technology already exists. We've just got to start enacting it. And that was a message that I think a lot of people felt enlivened by. It was hugely popular, I think, because we'd been feeling we can't make a difference and all of a sudden there was this sort of Bible 
um, that was given in a list of things that shows, you know, how effective each of these things can be. And I think one of the surprising elements to come out of the book is that one of the number one things that you can do is to empower women and girls. It's so effective, more effective than I think solar panels and solar uh, rooftops combined. And that was so surprising at the time. It's now part of the lexicon, I think, of the climate movement. But could you explain how that works? Sure. I mean, actually leaving out half of humanity is not a good way to solve a problem for all of humanity. And that's like, it's pretty simple, really. Now, the thing about girls' education is that just like all education, it, it changes who you are and how you see the world and what you want for yourself, for your children, for your family, for your community. And if you're consigned to, I would even say a secondary, but even a tertiary level of, of participation in society, decision-making, you know, religion, civics, and all the other institutions that comprise you know, a civilized world and so forth, you know, that voice is suppressed and not heard. And then it's just shunted aside and has been, and still is, of course, but it's changing very rapidly. And so it really is like, and the, the, I mean, I don't want to get into gender politics and so forth, but for women see and think differently than men, you know, hello, everybody. I mean, and for very, very deep, on, clear biological reasons. There's also the the population element to all of this as well. When young girls are educated and they're in the school system, they delay, you know, having children. They've also got less chance of landing in precarious scenarios where they become pregnant for the reasons that they don't want to become pregnant for. And so that has a big part to play in all of this, doesn't it? Is the it, it reduces population growth? Absolutely. I mean, that's the point. Yeah. I mean, that's the outcome. But I mean, the cause is that they become decision makers for their own lives. And instead of being objects, you know, they're subjects. And as subjects, they're very wise. And they say, okay, I want to do this. I want to really support my children. I don't want to be made pregnant every year by somebody who controls me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, absolutely. And so the number, why it was such a big impact in terms of a solution, quote, quote, is there's less people. Yep. And significant amounts, right? Oh, yeah. Very significant amounts. But also you have women now doing things, engaging, participating in many of the civic activities and so forth that have been either consigned to them as, you know, like you do this, do this, or but as, as, as leaders, you know, as reimagining what this community, what this tribe, you know, what this city, what this hospital, what this school is like, as opposed to being told. So it's, yeah, it's, just, it's really amazing. It's really fantastic. And, but, you know, in hindsight, I mean, don't you think, Sarah, this is like dead to rights obvious? You know, when you think about it, I mean, yes, it's in drawdown, but you go like, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not like you have to be a physicist to get this one. I think some of the top things that make a difference that were highlighted in drawdown, they all have multiple sort of effects. So the other one that I really jumped on at the time was food waste. So I think food waste came in initially at number three. And I think in the revised edition, the whole food chain, you know, if, if that got addressed, it would actually be one of the number one solutions for, for reducing carbon emissions in, you know, in the world today. And the benefit of that, when you address food waste, A, it's something that everyday consumers can do. They don't have to wait for a government to to change the rules. They don't have to wait for supermarkets to change things. They can actually address it immediately. So it did empower people. But the other thing that it does is it addresses things like the ethics. The number of animals that have been slaughtered pointlessly is reduced massively, you know, halved. And then you've also got the food scarcity issue, you know, which is another aspect of, you know, all the issues going on in the world today. So the solutions may not have seemed obvious to those people in the blue zone in Paris, but they're just common sense solutions for making a better world. It, were there any yeah. other s- significant outcomes? I mean, look, the book's been out for a while now. A lot of people read the book, millions of people around the world literally read the book and took on board the messaging. Were there any significant outcomes from so many people reading the book that you have seen and or have you had any regrets about the book and the information that was put out there at the time? Yeah, I do have regrets, but they, I knew about them a priori. 
which is that when you write a book, and you know this very well, you have to stay in your lane. If you start to go wandering around and you know, in the subject matter, then it's not a good book. The reader will probably put it down. You know, I didn't ask you that. I didn't open this book for that. I opened this book for this. You told me what it was. I'm going to go with you. Okay. I want what's on the packet. Uh, don't leave yeah. me otherwise. I want, yeah, I do, you know? And so I knew that Drawdown had to stay in its lane. I knew I was going to do Regeneration before Drawdown was written as the sequel because it did stay in its lane, which is, you know, the hundred most substantive solutions. You know, we map, measured, and modeled them. All right, and so forth. The problem is, there's no such thing as a global solution. So, if you're talking about a country that was no air conditioning, how could refrigerant management be a number one, two, or three solution? It's not. So, in a way, the data cartooned these things in a way, you know, like and made them iconic. When in fact, I was just in Monterey last night giving a talk to Regenerative Monterey. Okay. And this is community leaders and you know, on all levels of the community coming together to make Monterey the first regenerative county in California. Well, they're working on things that are specific to the needs and attributes of that county. And that county includes a, one of the biggest marine protected areas in the world, you know, MPA. And so very different you know, than, say, San Luis Obispo down, down the coast or this Contra Costa County and so forth. So the thing about regeneration is, and that's why it took into consideration, it has bigger arms. You know, it considers a much broader sensibility of how we look at this as opposed to the carbon tunnel syndrome. So drawdown is very much the carbon tunnel syndrome. It's measuring things in terms of carbon. But the thing that's happened is that you have now industrial agricultural companies and to drawdown's uh, point, and we make the same point, the food system is the greatest contributor to global warming. The food system in, in its entirety, not just food waste, its production, farming, the companies themselves. So what you see now in these, you know, Bayer, Monsanto, Syngenta, Corteva, so forth, they're talking about, you know, carbon farming, you know, and do this and that, and we'll pay you because you've sequestered carbon. Carbon was not the point of regenerative agriculture. It's an outcome. It's the outcome, you know, as a metric, as a measure, but that's not the purpose. It's about making more life. It's about creating a healthy soil, you know, stopping killing pollinators. It's about reservoirs of water in the soil instead of up in the air from evaporation coming down as floods. Uh, it's about stopping the 500 dead zones in the world, in oceans caused by agriculture runoff. There's a wonderful soil scientist, Joe. Jill Clapperton, who says, when you're standing on the ground, you're standing on the roof of another world. And we're just discovering what's going on down there. It is incredible. There's more life underneath in the soil than above on earth. More life below than above. So, so when you look at the things we did at Drawdown, it was pretty much in the carbon tunnel syndrome. Okay. And, but the thing is that Regeneration doesn't try to deny any of that. No, not at all. All they want is open our arms. Get say, can we do the whole tamale, please? Because that's who we are. That's where we live, and that's what brings us alive. Because regeneration is saying very, very clearly, we keep going down that road of extraction, which our entire economic basis is upon which we make money and grow and you know, create finance and et cetera, et cetera. It's all about extraction, taking more and more life. And what we're saying is, you know, that road ends over there. You can see the end of it. Everyone can just read the paper, just listen, watch whether that road ends. Do we still want to keep going down that road? I don't think so. And so really it's about a pivot saying, well, how can we live here and produce human needs and take care of people in such a way that produces more life successively? year after year after year. And so that's the difference between regeneration and drawdown. And, and so that's why I knew regeneration would was a sequel, but I knew that first I had to stay in my lane. You're a writer, you know exactly what I'm talking about and do one thing well, try to do it well. And then it sense you have permission to do that second thing. It's also where the world was at. You know, it's only what, how many years ago now? Almost eight years ago that you published the book. Six. Um, but but six the, years oh, ago. Six. There we go. But the world was in in CO2 reduction mode. This world still is. A lot of people still think the challenge that we face is all about CO2 emissions, you know, to, to keep under that 1.5 degrees below pre-industrial temperatures. And I get it, you know, it, it's a big urgent issue and we had to tackle it. You tackled it with your book. I tackled it with my work. But we've since 
and you realised this at the time, but we now are in a space where we're needing to have a broader conversation. Before we move on to that, do you feel we will ever hit drawdown? Do you think we will reach carbon drawdown? The Earth will. It, it depends when it will happen and, wh- and whether wh- we'll be there. Be the, yeah, well, the status of human beings at that time, you know. So, yeah, no question. It's the, the Earth is always oscillated that way, you know, and always will. There's more, there's less, there's more, there's less, there's more. That's a natural carbon cycle with the Milakovic cycle, which is, you know, ice ages and then warming and ice ages and warming. So there is a natural rhythm, you know, to the earth, you know, which increases um, CO2 and decreases it and even methane on occasion. So that's going to happen. The question is, do we want to get in conformity with that cycle or do we want to continue to see ourselves as special and, <laughs> and that we can kill nature and manipulate the atmosphere and persist, which is not going to be true. We w- it won't work. And so that's the getting the carbon tunnel syndrome. You have people thinking that, well, it's it's, it's you know tech bros from Silicon Valley thinking, okay, we're going to capture this carbon, direct air capture is an interesting term, capturing. Anyway, and we're going to you know liquefy it and we're going to suck it out of the air. We're going to put it in geological formations and et cetera. And it's so charming and ridiculous because it takes 20 million machines running 24-7 until 2100, by the way, and sucking in energy itself, be renewable energy, but huge panels and wind turbines you know, to run these carbon-sucking machines and so forth. I mean, I appreciate the intent. I don't question that. But it's this idea that somehow capitalism can cure consumption. You know, that no, you can your life can stay the way it is, but we're going to go over here, you know, and fix it. And again, there's no it, and you can't fix it. You can only create a society that it actually is in harmony, you know, in sync with biology. And so the problem is, you point out, it's not the atmosphere. The problem is the biosphere. And the problem the biosphere is us. There's only one species of the 8.7 million known species or identified species that kills its hosts. That's us. Only one. All the rest actually figure out a way to live together and so forth. You know, I mean, they probably don't think that way, but the fact is they create more life instead of less. Only us actually destroys our home. So yeah, drawdown will happen at some point, but the prognosis for it happening, you know, in our lifetime, children's lifetime, grandchildren's lifetime is is slim, is, is what you're saying. Yeah, because most of the approach to reversing global warming or hitting net zero in 2050 are those kind of, you know, carbon neutral, these good jargonistic things that the climate communication goes out into the world, rely or depend or assume that we will consume the same way we are now, but only more. And so as long as you think that you're preserving or protecting your lifestyle today and you need to do X, Y, and Z, you know, in order to do so, it will it will fail, absolutely fail. And if we're not looking at how we live, if we're not willing to give something, which nobody wants to talk about that, really. But give up in a way and the return what you get, though, is a meaningful, purposeful life of dignity. You know, that's what you get. And if people think they have that now in their daily work, I would I would I want to talk to them because they don't. Most people feel they don't have a purpose and purpose, the lack of purpose is the number one cause of depression and addiction. And uh, yeah, well, destroying the world doesn't really give you a real sense of well-being. Yeah. Well, let's get on to regeneration because this is where you very much tap into all of these ideas and move the model away from the carbon tunnel, but also from this idea that we can fix it with all these tech solutions. And my sense from working in this space for a long time, not as long as you, but is that people just have never believed that message. And I think that's got a lot to do with why 99.5% of people aren't getting fired up and engaged in this is because there's this kind of lack of congruence. It doesn't make sense. The messages we've been told don't hit us in the solar plexus. We're not feeling it and so we're kind of not buying it. And I think what you're trying to say in this book is very much tapping into the stuff that that makes sense at an intuitive, emotional and spiritual level. So I get the sense this is a book you've always wanted to write, Paul. You've given an intimation of what the thesis is, but 
why don't you deliver it again? And I'll just give you a couple of little pointers which really jumped out at me. You said that the regeneration is almost like answering a bunch of questions and two of them that I really love. Does the action create more life or reduce it? And does it enhance human well-being or diminishing it? And in my book, This One Wild and Precious Life, I actually quote James Hollis. He was a guest here on Wild, one of the very early episodes, in fact, and he's an incredible mind. And I think it's in his book, Living an Examined Life. And he talks about this idea of asking this beautiful question when you're making a decision. Does your choice or decision enlarge or diminish life? And it's very much what this regeneration project works to. Can you explain what you mean by regeneration as an alternative to the carbon tunnel syndrome? (laughs) I'd be happy to. Regeneration is coming home. And what I mean by that is it's, it's who we are innately. We care. We care. This is, and it comes from our heart. And this is the marvelous thing about Homo sapiens is that there's many different Homo species and we prevailed because we didn't try to prevail. We prevailed because we cooperated with each other. And that's the takeaway from Homo sapiens. Well, do we lose it all the time and go off the, you know, off the edge? Yeah, of course. And we do it right now everywhere in the world. But the thing is that regeneration is the default mode of life. We're alive. So why not get in sync with the default mode of life, you know? And it works better. It works better for our own health, human health, for our mental health. It works better for farming. It works better for soil. It works better for creatures. It works better for water, for purity, for... You just tick off the boxes. It works better. You know, the system we have doesn't work. We've lost half of all life on the planet in the last 200 years. Half of it is gone. And the rate at which we're losing life on the planet is still accelerating right now. So... Again, it goes back to the, well, is the way we're thinking, the way we're trained, the way we believe, you know, that we should create well-being for each other and ourselves, is that working? It's not working. That well-being doesn't exist. Does money exist? Does wealth exist? Yes. And it's highly, highly skewed, but that's another subject, important one. And so the thing about regeneration is, I say, it's coming home. In other words, it's innate to being a human being, and it's innate to a life that makes sense. The reason regenerative agriculture works is because it honors life. And if we want to eat food and be nurtured, it's a really good idea to go back to the source of it, which is soil health creates plant health, creates people health, whether if you eat animals, well, okay, then the animals are healthier. If you eat food, it's you're healthy. Either way, now, this is intractable. This is not something negotiable. This is not something that you know chemical ag can surmount or you know pretend otherwise. It doesn't. We have an agricultural system that kills life, and it says we need to kill more and more life in order for you to eat to live. You're like, well, well, wait a minute. I'm confused. You have to kill life to make life. That's what industrial agriculture is. And it worked, you know, quote, quote, to create abundance, but it created abundance at the expense of the living world, you know, until soils are eroded. 7,000 pounds a year per person of soil is lost in the world. And we've lost 30 to 80% of pollinators in the world. You know, pollinators, you take away the pollinators, we're all gone. Everything, fish, people, animals, planet's gone. You know, and so I can go on and on. You know, the point being is that life works and it always has and always will. So regeneration is like asking a question. It's not like I know, Sarah, what to do and so forth, so much as we do. And the question is, hmm. And so when I was in Regenerative Monterey and Regen Monterey, these organizations where the community is coming together and saying, you know, they understand that the only place you can make a difference is where you are. No place else. I can't do anything for Australia. I can write books and people can read them, but it doesn't make any difference if less somebody does something there in Australia. And so we have to realize that even though it's sort of like, wow, you know, you read what's going on and this and that and this in terms of floods and drought and heat and fire, et cetera, you go, wow, yeah, true. It's feedback. It's a teaching. It's a lesson. The earth is giving us feedback. We're the students. It's the teacher. But where we can actually be effective 
is in community and life only exists in community no place else every cell in your body with two to five trillion molecules is a community it's a community you have 40 trillion cells your body's a community and there's no such thing as an individual that's only in comic books and westerns they don't exist we are not individuals we're so beautifully interconnected inextricably connected with all of life you know and so to me, that's what I mean of going home. Regeneration is like, let's come home. Let's realize who we are and where our true strength lies, you know. And it lies in our heart, which is courage. It's not just hope, it's courage. That is where where we need to go. And it's daunting right now to look at the world and the situations we're in and the, the wars and the horror and the atrocities and, you know, the... The fact the biggest industry in the world right now is the war industry. Nobody calls it an industry. They call the fossil fuel industry is the biggest. The war industry is the biggest industry. In the world. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I want to come back to the war thing because yeah. I think it's exceedingly relevant as we're speaking right now. But from what you've just said, I pick up a few things. First of all, I really do pick up the fact that we've kind of, I mean, as I started this conversation with, I've been really struggling with my own sense of hope. And it's because I think we've been pegging our hope to the wrong thing. We've been pegging our hope to fighting climate, fixing the climate and winning this kind of fight. And that's an impossible thing to peg hope to. And so we become despondent. And it's a terrible, terrible thing when what you're hoping for and what's going on is not matching up. That's when you really give up. But what you're really talking about here is, you know, in this idea of rejoining life, is that you're suggesting solutions, things for us to do that really, if you were going to present them in any other format, they'd be things we would want to do anyway right? They're charming. They're joyful. They go to the heart of being fully human again. They're the things that we're aching for. And you touched on this idea of meaning. You know, there's so many of us feeling like we're lacking meaning in our life because we've become so estranged from life, you know, from the matrix of life. And it's almost like your book could be called, you know, a bunch of things. The subtitle could have been, you know, it might be Regeneration, How to Have an Awesome Life, that might have been the subtitle because that is really what you're pushing here. And it's very similar to the message that I write about in this one wild and, rich and precious life. I'm like, don't you want to live this way anyway? Like I don't live the way I do because it's sort of self-flagellating. I actually live the way I do because it's the most joyful way to live. The other thing that I picked up on, you know, you were talking about how nature and use the word create you know, it's all about creating and humans love creating. And yet we've been in a world which is all about extraction. And that is, is an incredible dissonance that we've had to live with. No wonder we're despairing. And then we look at the problem of the climate crisis and all of the other black swans and things going on in the world. And it's just huge. And they're systems, right? Interconnected systems. What can we do? We go into our system or use the word community. We go into our system and we clean up our system and then that will have impacts. And that's really where I get excited about things now is systems theory, you know, and you can make an impact. 
you have an, a lever. Your community is a lever that feeds into what's happening to the rest of the world. And those are actually genuinely hopeful messages. They can actually be fulfilled in our lifetimes. So, yeah, I really enjoy some of the the bits and pieces that you talk about in and around the broader message of regeneration. But I'm wondering if you could actually talk about some of the solutions, particularly on your solutions page, the nexus part of your website that's attached to this book project. But you really do issue it with the caveat, do something that brings joy. You don't have to do all of this. Choose the things that are going to bring you joy because you're more likely to stick to it. It's going to be meaningful and then you'll probably try some other things. And I couldn't help but notice in their beavers as a category, I have no idea. Would you like to explain what people can do with beavers? How are beavers going to change the world? Also, maybe even pick up on a couple of other solutions and processes that, you know, the book's been out for a little while now, but what you've seen brings a lot of people joy or maybe that brings you joy, you know, some of the activities that people might want to get engaged in. When I tell people, people say, well, what should I do? And I say, I have no idea, but I know one thing. Scan this list of solutions, if you will, or, you know, and the thing about Nexus, by the way, in the website is that it's by agency. In other words, you take afforestation, you go, wow, great idea. I live in Memphis, Tennessee, you know, nothing I can do about that. And so it gives you what you can do by agency. You know, if you're an individual, if you're a neighborhood, if you're a community, if you're a county or province, et cetera, you know, if you're a company, if you're a corporation, et cetera, so that you go, oh, oh, okay, I actually am a commissioner of this thing. I'm doing this. I am, you know, on the school board or this or that. So you start to see where you have the points of intervention on all levels of agency. And that was missing from Drawdown on purpose. Again, so far, it wasn't about agency. It was about mapping, measuring, and modeling. So people say what to do. I said, you know, read over the list. It can be from Drawdown. It can be from Regeneration. There's a big overlap between the two. But read it and then look at the one that where you it lights you up. It go, wow, I've, I used to do that. I used to love that. Or I know about that. Or I don't know about it. I'm so curious. I've always wanted to whatever, fill in the blank. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is and how it lights you up, that's where you should focus because that's where you're going to be completely engaged and other people are going to be influenced by you because they're going to be influenced by your interest, by your involvement, by your passion. Whereas if you're doing it out of guilt or shame, if you're doing it out of, you know, like, oh, okay, I better do this otherwise, you know, no, it's not going to really work. And that's why community is so important because we're all different, not because we're all the same in community. And it's because in a community, we listen. If we don't listen, we're not community. It's really about asking the questions. It's not about knowing the answers, you know, and the questions are vital to it. And so, you know, when I was in Monterey yesterday, and so that's what I'm talking about and so forth, you know, I was just so impressed by the diversity and the joy of the people in this 350 people, you know, and coming all around to, you know, and they didn't really need me, you know? I mean, they had each other. <laughs> it wasn't like I'm gonna make a difference. It was a joy to talk to them for me as well, but I'm just saying is that they're cohering. And what's interesting is other counties are contacting them and saying, what are you doing? Can you teach us how to do it? And so that's how change happens. One county can't change another county, but it can change and the other county can look over the fence and going, hey, that's really working. What is, you know, what are you doing? How did you do it? What, and so we're learning, we're a learning organism, you know, that's what we'd love to do. And so that's where the solutions like beavers, beavers is like, you know, we extirpated them almost entirely from North America. We went from, I think, was it 6 million to 40,000 40, beavers, you know. They were all killed for the pelts, you know, beaver hats, beaver this, beaver that. And they were seen as destroying because they were gnawing with trees and, you know, building little dams and all that sort of stuff. And what we know now is that, that nothing improves water quality, water storage, soil quality <laughs> in the in ecosystems and beavers, you know, and fisheries, et cetera. And it's just, it's just ca- cascading benefits of slowing water down is what it does. It slows it down. So it, it instead of rushing down the river or the stream or the rivulet, you know, to becoming a stream, becoming a river, going to the ocean, water is actually stopped. Stop, 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 stop. And water stops, I don't mean doesn't totally stop and so forth, it goes down. It doesn't go into the ocean, 
right? And so forth. And then the water that is then is is purified, is cleaner. It goes through all these sort of filters, you know, in the natural systems and so forth. So it benefits the fish downstream who want to come upstream, like in the case of the salmonids and so forth. And so, and then other wildlife does better because water is available. There is more trees, oddly enough, from beavers gnawing down trees. There's more forests, not less. I mean, so it's kind of called trophy cascade, but I mean, it's called a cascade of benefits that arise from a single act of a single species doing something in its own self-interest. So they're acting out of self-interest, but their self-interest, again, has this enormous benefit for all other species, even the ones who are trying to predate them. So beavers are examples of who we could be. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. in a funny way you know. and they're also super cute and I can imagine people listening to this are like yeah I want to get involved in the beaver action and I think that's the point right I I kind of did this journey when I was writing this fun wild and precious life on the one hand I was doing the data and the this is serious guys pay attention like you know this is not the dress rehearsal we're in it but at the same time, you know, I went. It was a three-year journey to to really arrive at something that I felt might impact people. And my point was, when we love something hard enough, we tend to fight to save it. And I felt that let's if let, we let, let's stop there, to, let's not use fight. Let's not use the word fight. Fight's the problem. I I can see that now. Yeah, we're not fighting. Yeah, I know, and I take your point. And it was a fault of my book. It's a bit like you and Drawdown. You look at it and you go. Yeah, okay, you know, I could have done things a little bit differently and I was also confined by the times and also by the lane that I chose. But, yes, let's say I will mobilise to join the thing that I love so much, right? And so my thesis was to go out into nature and I know that's very much part of your mindset as well. I know I've read somewhere before that you feel very safe and held in nature and that comes from your childhood, very much the same story with me. I've never felt safer in my life than I am in a tent in the middle of the forest or in the middle of the desert on my own. That is when I feel held and completely almost held like by a mother, you know, what I imagine it would feel like to be held by, you know, a loving mother. So so I get that. And I'm really touched by the way that you present this this most recent book because I think the really central part of it, the bit that I would love anyone listening to this takes away from the conversation is that, well, who knows what's going to happen, right? Who knows what's going to happen with all these systems, the wars that are going on. However, we could just, if we're going to go down, let's go down as the best humans, the happiest, most meaningful, fed humans that we could possibly be. Why wouldn't you do this anyway, you know? This is how we want to be living anyway. So so let's do it. And then it becomes a, a very approachable thing to do. It becomes an absolute relief. You do see that it's not so much about fixing it. That's the other piece that I'm taking from you. This is not about fixing the problem. The earth, the planet will find its own way to heal and modulate and adjust. Let's join it. Let's join it as it does this adjustment rather than fight it. And it's a completely different mindset. And as I say, I've been really struggling with hope and just really revisiting your work. And and I sort of read Regeneration six months ago, but revisiting it for this this interview made me realize we've just been hoping for the wrong thing. You know, we just need to reposition the hope. But I would love to ask you, the subtitle of the book is very ambitious, Paul, Fixing Climate Change in One Generation. Do you reckon we can do it? What is the climate crisis? Well, the cli- yes, good point. The climate crisis repositioned now that we've just had that conversation is our disconnection from nature. Yeah. So we're the climate crisis. So what I'm saying the subtitle of the book is really about in one generation, we will, by and large, as humanity, be undertaking, engendering, supporting, nurturing. Those are the words, not fight activities, so forth, that will lead us to where we want to go. That's what it means about ending the, ending the crisis in one generation. We are the crisis. Our thinking, what we do, what we expect, what we, even what we hope for in some cases is the crisis because hope doesn't do it 
action does it and commitment does it. And so that's what it means about ending the climate crisis. The crisis is that 99.5% of people don't do anything and all our institutions are hogtied and pretty much ineffective, if not corrupt. Okay, that's where we are. <laughs> you know, it's like, interesting, thank you. Now, what am I gonna do? Who am I gonna be? What do I wanna do with my one precious life? as you point out, and so forth. And does it make sense to keep beating against that? And, you know, it, and people do, and, and I love them for doing it, by the way, so don't get me wrong. I'm not de de decrying anybody's activity so much as I'm just saying is, what does this earth, what is it whispering to us? What is she telling us? What is this message, this sweet message that's always there for us if we just wake up, listen, be still, and, you know, actually literally go outside. And that is there for us. And you can look over your back, over your shoulder and saying, well, those people don't, what, they don't understand or they're corrupt. I mean, the head of conference of the party this year in Dubai is uh, Sultan Al-Jaber. I mean, he's the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, you know, uh, ADNOC. And he is committed to raising their daily output from three to six million barrels a day. Okay. And he's heading conference of the parties. So, and he said, well, why should I be a part of this conversation? Well, you should be part of the conversation, but leading it, I don't think so. But so, you know, you can look at that and be cynical, be angry, be, you know, you see how corrupted the process is. But at the same time, it doesn't block us, doesn't stop us, you know, from having this conversation, from doing the things that, that I saw last night, you know, in Monterey and meeting the people and just the farmers and the school teachers and the, the person who owns the lumber store and the builders and the, you know, I mean, it's just so beautiful. Human beings are beautiful. And at one time in the indigenous people that the indigenous people would say, the human beings are a beautiful expression of the earth. And the fact that we don't see that now is because of what we've become and the regrets that we have and where we've been led. But the fact is that human beings are an integral, beautiful part of this earth and can be again. And so we can see, you know, with the Aboriginal 65,000 years in one place, people living in one place. In Monterey, it's at least 10,000 years people live there very, very, very successfully and, and nurtured the environment and created more instead of less. How you and I, we are, you know, not indigenous and most of the world is not, but we can learn so much from them because if you look at indigenous language, it is redolent with verbs. The English and most of the you know other languages, but especially English, is just dominated by nouns, and nouns are dominating terms in in a language. Verbs are about relationship, and everything going forward is about relationship. And and the, what indigenous people teach us is that they saw the living world as relatives, not just a relationship. They're relatives. They're kin. They're kids, you know, as opposed to something that we objectify, take, cut, you know, I mean, extract, you know. And so that is the shift from degeneration to regeneration and so forth, you know. That's the difference between healing the future or stealing it, because we're stealing it right now. And we're stealing from our children, our grandchildren, if they're not our children, it's somebody else's, but we're stealing it just as well, and so forth, and so forth. And, you know, we have more disease today than ever before, not less, even though we have this huge multinational pharmaceutical, you know, business in the world, you know, I mean, and we're profiting from disease. We're not healing disease because we're not going to source, you know, and we're creating human wants. We're not really meeting human needs. And the things about regeneration and the solutions and brought out is, look at, let's meet human needs. That's what we're here to do, you know, to really address the suffering and the needs of most people in the world today. Yeah. Thank you for that. I can feel what you're saying, apart from just hearing it. I was also thinking as you were talking about all of this, that I feel that, you know, you said the climate crisis is teaching us something. And I think it's also possible that the climate crisis could be the thing that forces us into this sort of regenerative mindset. We, we may have to go there whether we like it or not, you know, and I think that almost answers the subtitle of your book as well. Humanity will have to kind of simplify to be able to cope with what's going to happen going forward. And so 
it could be actually a really wonderfully beautiful aspect of all of this, this thing that we've seen as so despairing for so long. It might just be the very thing that pushes us back to that reconnection with meaningful engagement with the planet again. Sadly, it'd be the sadder way to go about things. It'd be nice if we can choose to go there now. And that's the invitation, right? We can do this now. I wrote a book called I Quit Sugar many years ago. And, you know, I I wrote it because people were despairing about the food industry and how corrupt the food industry was and how connected it was to governments and how governments were not going to be changing policies in anytime soon or advertising or all that kind of thing. And so I was like, all right, well, let's not wait for them. Let's just do it now. Let's do it now and make better food than the stuff that they're putting in the packets. Let's actually make it fun. Let's crowd out the shitty food with good stuff, you know. And I think it's a similar sort of principle. We don't have to wait. We do it now. We change the systems. We start to nudge and lever things. And I think that's probably the most empowering way to look at things. Now, I am aware that we have just about run out of time. And I did want to just alert you to the fact that I quote your commencement speech from, I think, 2006, and I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. When I read it the first time, I weeped. And anyway, I got permission from you. You probably don't remember this. It was probably somebody in your office that that granted me permission to have it in, as the last, the last words in my book, This One Wild and Precious Life. Those words mean a lot to me. I'm wondering if you'd be comfortable reading it out for everyone here and maybe even explain in a little bit of context for us. I'd be happy to. It's the University of Portland, which is a Holy Names Catholic school. And a friend of mine, uh, Barry Lopez, one of the most, the best writers in the world, naturalism, naturalist writer, who, who, who passed a year ago, just like a year and a half ago. Anyway, a dear friend asked me and another friend of his to come up and give the commencement speech. And so that's why I, I, I said yes. And I got up there and I've, they wanted me to do all these things. I said, no, but dinner dinner the night before, sure, I'll do that. And Father Beauchamp, who was the president of the school, was at my table. And it was obvious he did not want me to be the commencement speaker. speaker excuse me. It was a trustee who actually was not there because for some other reason who had chosen me or put me forth and nominated me. And Father Beauchamp was not very nice. And then he introduced the four people who were getting honorary degrees and he said, "This got Paul Hawkers and da da da." Just a short little thing with a bio. I don't know where he got the bio. It was wrong. And then he went on to these encomiums for the Bishop of Seattle, the Bishop of Spokane, and this Chinese chalice and so forth, and and went on and on and on about how great they were. And I thought, so I went up to his assistant. I said, "You know, if he calls me Paul Hawkers tomorrow, it's okay with me." But I said, "I'm in Portland. A lot of people know me, and say so he's going to look foolish, not me." And I, I sort of left and went back to my hotel. I threw my speech away. And I said, I'm going to write to the students. I'm not writing, you know, to this. I'm right to them right now. This is what it's about. I wrote the speech, put away at midnight, went to bed, happy. And I woke up in the morning, I read the speech, and I thought, this speech is terrible. <laughs> I said, oh, man, I got to have So I started again. And I got some ordered room service. You know, I was there in my underwear and T-shirt, you know, writing this thing and I had just started to really reread it and I thought it was finished, I read it and the phone rang and said, oh, we're ready to go, you know, picking you up and I thought, oh my God. So I, you know, I put it on a thumb drive, put on my clothes, you know, and ran downstairs, had it printed out, put it in my pocket, went, you know, and, you know, and commenced the speech, you put on your little insect costume, you know, and all that sort of stuff. and. <laughs> and it was all, <clears throat> I couldn't get the speech out. It was in my soup pocket and this and that. I wanted to get it out to read it, you know, and I didn't have a chance to. And then all, all were on stage within six minutes since I'm the commencement speaker, there I am, you know, on, on the podium. And they have a really bad podium. There's 6,000 people there. The microphone splits the page. So I have to kind of go like this, you know, I'm reading it. I'm correcting typos as I read. And I, I, I read a speech, you know, I read a speech and sort of sit down. The Bishop of Seattle and Spokane are glaring at me as I sit down because I, I have to sing about, you know, if the Messiah comes, you know, what, what would you do? You know, and plant a tree first and check to see if the story is true. It, they didn't like my speech at all, you know. And I thought, okay, I sat there for two hours and we walked away. And when I got backstage again, Barry Lopez was there and my other friend said, oh, how do you, what do you, how do you think? I said, I give it a four out of 10, you know, 
like, ugh, it was not a great experience. And they said, no, it's better than that. And and, he, and a guy said, can I have it? I said, sure, yeah, here, took it out. He said, there's typos there, you gotta fix them. And I had tea and went home and said, I'm not doing any more commencement speeches. And within 48 hours, that thing was trending on Twitter all over the world. And they published it. And it just went, and it was named the commencement speech of the year by NPR and other, you know, and it's like, and I realize now that I owe this to Father Beauchamp because he was such a, a whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was a noun. <laughs> he was yeah. so, he, and if it Definitely wasn't for Father Beauchamp, yeah, it wasn't for Father Beauchamp, I never would have written that speech. And it makes me realize, which I oftentimes realize, when, when bad things happen to you, you know, difficult things happen, you go, you don't want that to happen you didn't want it you know it's just like actually you look back sometimes you go wow that was such a gift that was such a gift and he was such a gift in that way anyway so yes i'll be happy to read the last part so ralph waldo emerson once asked what we would do if the stars only came out once every thousand years no one would sleep that night of course the world would create new religions overnight we would be ecstatic delirious, made rapturous by the glory of God. Instead, the stars come out every night and we watch television. This extraordinary time when we are globally aware of each other and the multiple dangers that threaten civilization has never happened. Not in a thousand years, not in 10,000 years. Each of us is as complex and beautiful as all the stars in the universe. We have done great things and we have gone way off course in terms of honoring creation. The generations before you failed. They didn't stay up all night. They got distracted and lost sight of the fact that life is a miracle every moment of your existence. Nature beckons you to be on her side. You couldn't ask for a better boss. The most unrealistic person in the world is the cynic, not the dreamer. Hope only makes sense when it doesn't make sense to be hopeful. This is your century. Take it and run as if your life depends on it. Oh, Paul, it gets me every time. You know, they didn't stay up all night, you know, and that idea of hope only makes sense when it no longer makes sense to be hopeful, you know. It's, yeah, it's, it's beautiful and, uh, and you know, however many years later, it's, it's still so, so relevant and incredibly, I'm crying now, you know, incredibly relevant to where I'm at and the exploration I'm on is I'm just trying to find, you know, my footing in a world that keeps shifting and taking me to a different chapter in, in the journey of it all, you know. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you for your pragmatism but also just the beautiful spiritual philosophical element that you bring to it. It's it's absolutely beautiful and, and needed. So thank you for joining me. Oh, I not only join you, I follow you. So thank you for everything you do and for your <laughs> incisive intelligence. I call it rambunctious intelligence, but incisive intelligence and your selection of guests. I've learned a lot and that's how we met virtually. And I'm so happy to be here with you today. As I said at the top, I have been grappling with hope for some time and this chat made me think that perhaps the issue isn't the human project of hope, it's that we've been hoping for the wrong thing or for a thing that actually makes no sense to hope for, fixing the planet when the planet doesn't need fixing, as Paul says, we do. I'm just going to repeat that final line from Paul's commencement speech because I think it speaks directly to this. The most unrealistic person in the world is the cynic, not the dreamer. Hope only makes sense when it doesn't make sense to be hopeful. This is your century. Take it and run as if your life depends on it. And I think many of you listening here do feel like our life does depend on it. Now, something that we didn't get to in this conversation, but I've heard Paul say before, and I thought I'd leave it with you here. The insanity of infinite growth and the capitalist model as all capable is something I reference a lot, and Paul does too. Anyway, he, in an interview, was asked about this idea of whether we can redefine the idea of growth, and I like the way he put it. Arguably, he said, 
Once we as individuals stop growing physically in our 20s, 19, 18, whatever, we continue to grow. But we don't grow in size. We grow in depth and complexity and understanding and compassion. And I think the same exists for the economy as a whole right now. And I'd add to that, I think the same exists for the whole of humanity right now. Okay, be sure to check out regeneration.org. Again, I'll put it in the show notes and go straight to the solutions page. It is very fun. There's lots of tools and widgets that you can use to calculate how you can go about making a difference. I'll be here next week to chat to another wild guest. I'll see you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.